All right, so this is Catherine Labrec. So I'll introduce myself. Now, the last time I did a program on this topic for culinary historians was in 2011. Scott wasn't available. He wrote a script for me to read. I'm not doing that tonight because it's there in history. It's on the internet somewhere. And as much as it's amusing to me, <laughs> it takes up too much time. And this talk might be go a little long. Sorry about that. But it's the, so this is, and that was the 2011 edition. This is the 2023 edition with additional content. I have never presented this particular one before, which means I don't know how long this is going to go. So my apologies. And if you feel you need to just walk away, well, you know, there's that thing. Leave and you leave. The people that are standing here can walk away too. I will not have my feelings hurt. That's, you know, just the way the things crumble. So the first thing that you have to look at right now on the screen is a bunch of lovely pie slices. There's a monthly dinner in Kingston, Illinois. It's the, the parishioners come at five, uh, eight o'clock in the morning to prepare the dinner. And if they start serving around like 4, 35 o'clock, but there's always pie and people who come there know the drill. You get your pie first and then sit down. And there's a lovely array of pies. And yes, a number of them have Cool Whip in them, but you know, think about it. Whipping cream is not always that stable. Sometimes you do need that, uh, you need the stability of whipping cream. I'm not whipping cream, but of uh, Cool Whip and its friends. So let me tell you how I got into pies. I used to spend time in Eastern Europe and Soviet Union. And occasionally we'd have guests for dinner. And if we had a lot of guests, I always made my grandmother's German apple cake or Kuchen. Well, these people were sometimes a little bit inebriated. By the time they got to dessert, they were like, oh my God, it's American apple pie. We've read about this. We've never experienced it before. And I go, no, it's not apple pie. You know, me and I just needed to correct them all the time. And they're like, you're an American? It's apples? It's a pie as far as we're concerned. It's American apple pie. I was highly embarrassed by this situation, but you know, what are you gonna do? <laughs> like I said, they were a little bit inebriated, but where I really got to learn about apples, I was home one winter and I decided to learn how to make apple pie. And I used the joy of cooking as my standard at the time. And I began with like, where you kind of assembled it in the, in a uh, food processor, and then you padded it in. You know, none of this skillful using a rolling pin and things flying around. No, we pressed it in. And that was fine. But then after a while, you're feeling like this is a little too thick. I really need to, to up my game. And then I started using making pie crust. And I will cover how I make a pie crust at the end of this talk. So you're not missing anything. Um, but it was just one of those things where I got good at it and my relatives were very happy now to come over and have pie with us. Well, I had a friend who made quilts by hand and I went with her to the Lake County Fair. And after we were finished admiring her efforts, I went over and checked the food section and realized a lot of what was sitting there, I had a good grip on and I could probably do pretty well. So the following year I submitted an apple pie. And I think I got like third or fourth place, not very high, but there was a very useful note from the judge on the back of the ticket. And it said, thinner crust. So the following year, I took that person's advice and I made a thinner crust. Well, I got champion of pies. I was pretty pleased with myself. The next year I show up at the Lake County Fair, I can't find my pie. I'm walking around, what the heck happened to my pie? Well, it went to some high level exhibit area because I not only had champion, I had grand champion and best of show. I was like, damn, that's pretty good. And I never really went too much further after that, maybe one or two more years. Because after that, you're kind of like competing against yourself and it's kind of frustrating. So 
the first time I did this talk back in 2004 or five, I began with, I confess, I am more a pie baker than a pie historian. However, after spending lots of time thinking and making pies and talking about pies, I will now go toward the direction of pie historian, but you know, not to, to pat my ego, of course. Um, so one of the challenges I had when I had to do this talk initially was one of my friends and culinary historians said, well, this is your opportunity to debunk apple pie is American. In fact, he felt it was more British. And I'm not gonna argue the point, I'm talking American context, American pies. And over the years, I've become convinced that pies are American style pies. And they do call it that when you watch, you know, like uh, the great British baking show, oh, the American style of pies. And they always overdo it. But in any case, um, with these pies, um, they are American. It's kind of like pizza is Italian, and then you have the American variant that doesn't necessarily add up to how it is in the home country. So I look at it as we're Americans, and darn it, it's our pie too. Um, but it was also, and by the way, here is a small bakery in the middle of Nevada. There's no wood pretty much there. However, you see the little mound in front of that tent. I believe that's dried cow patties present to burn and heat and help with the cooking. But at the same time, so when it comes to pies, you know, we, 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 we took what we had a scarcity of flour and maybe in some occasions fuel and maybe in this area if you were not prepared and what we had plenty of which was fruits and meats and lard and having no brick ovens we used our ingenuity to work with what was available we used the dutch oven and you put the pie in there and you mound the coals on top you mound the coals on bottom and you have a functional oven. You can bake a cake in there too, but in this case, since we're pie-centric tonight, it's going to be a pie. Um, now, would the Europeans consider pie survival food? No. It might be dinner, it might be dessert, it might be called a casket. You know, they're not really going to eat that exterior portion. It's just there as a stand-in to help, you know, keep the contents enclosed. But in the American context, in the American settler context, there is an argument in that direction. But pie, especially when you could do things like rye vast quantities of apples, you could take 20 bushels of apples. And once they were dried, they were now three bushels. So it's compact food. And you could, and by the way, <laughs> this was something that grossed out my nieces years ago. One of the things that they appreciated under these setups was when the flies and the ants showed up to kind of like drink the juices and help with the with the drying process. Oh yeah, they were totally grossed out. And I can see somebody here is too. <laughs> but pie potentially could be breakfast, lunch, and dinner for months on end. You know, you start you when you before you go to bed in the evening, you go and you put your apples to hydrate. You get up in the morning and you bake that that pie. Like I said, it's sort of like a, and you know, it's compact food. You could take it with you on the wagon and such. And um, and eat, and apples came with the pilgrims. They may have, some may have come earlier, some a little bit later, but we know for the pilgrims, they came with saplings. They're easy to grow, easy to preserve. And at least one Revolutionary War veteran from New York State maintained a hundred apple trees just for his personal use. Um, so, you know, had a, a lot of promises. So here we have a nice, lovely apple pie. Um, and probably these apple pies were not quite what you get today. The flour might have been rougher, maybe some stones mixed in. Um, probably they didn't afford sugar all the time. That might have been, you know, for a special occasion. 
or just simply unaffordable. And cinnamon, you know, if you're if you're living on meager meager amount of funds, you're not thinking about cinnamon. But it was still, you know, a satisfactory dish. Now, Johnny Appleseed traversed this area. In fact, the Highland Park Historical Society at the Stoopy Cabin has a um, has an apple tree that is supp allegedly, supposedly, and we want it to be uh, traced back to Johnny Appleseed. Um, it's been supposed that this particular tree is a sweet apple. If it were, it would be available to us in September. But from what I've learned, it's a sourish apple probably, and it's a very early uh, ripening one. So more likely, and those were the apples that were used for making hard cider. And Johnny Appleseed did not use methods like grafting. That was against his religious beliefs. He, everything was from a seed. And you know, when you got, when you're planting an apple tree from seed, it's roulette. You just don't know what, what is the apple tree that's going to evolve. It might be excellent and it might be not so excellent. And that's what it gets used for the hard cider. And in fact, he had a whole business. He would move ahead just ahead of where settlers were coming and plant orchards. And when they arrived, they would buy it off of him. And at least in Ohio, early on, you could have 100 acres, but you were expected within a five or 10 year period to have planted um, 50 apple trees and 20 peach trees. So his participation kind of helped advance things along. <clears throat> now, if there were many apple trees, now you know, he died in 1845, it's quite likely that the cultivars of the trees that he planted might not have been around, but if they were, and they were identified as hard cider producing apples, they would have been cut down during prohibition. So that's why if there wasn't it very many, there's a whole lot less chance that there would be something out there. Now, we're fortunate in this, in Northern Lake County, we've have at least growing up here, because I know things have changed. Like in Lake County, there were a number of orchards you could visit. It was something you did as a, an activity like Columbus Day weekend. Um, you have to go much further now. You have to go out to McHenry County, perhaps, to do that. But there are a few people who have been preserving 19th century apples. And this is done with uh, grafting. Um, this is done with grafting. And there's, if you look on here, there's several tree apples were in Civil War era, Civil War era. When the person went and collected these, um, the grafts from this tree, the trees, um, the tree's trunk was vast. It was vast. And it was lucky that he did what he did. But despite much, some efforts, <laughs> they still haven't identified yet what these apples happen to be. Um, I will point out like the Ida Red, that was an apple that we had sitting there on the table when we lined everything up. And he's, he was able to just go forward and tell us everything except for the Ida Red. And he finally, he says, oh, and he bit into it. Oh, it is an Ida Red, I thought it was. But it wasn't until he tasted it that he could verify that that apple really was a Ida Red. There's the Rhode Island Greening, this was an apple that was called for in lots of 19th century recipes. We're talking the 1800s. And the first time I was allowed to visit this, uh, um, this person's private orchard, he gave me a greeting. And man, I took that to a history conference and said, this is the apple we have read about and have never really tasted. And the other piece that's in this array of apples, oh, by the way, there's one called Sheep's Nose. And if you, it's on the left side, close to the top, like at about 11 o'clock, he said, it's not a good tasting apple. I took it on faith and tried it. It's really not a good tasting apple. I could not believe this apple was as poor tasting as it was. But 
he has a friend who likes it. So he keeps it for this person. And that's a very nice, nice thing to do. Um, in fact, with this apple project, each one of these apples I have baked samples of. And because he wanted to know what's a good baking apple, because that's the question, uh, eternal question. And you know what? I've come to the conclusion, all apples are bakeable. Not all of them are great. And that's because like, take a look at the Macintosh apple. You know, it's great for making applesauce as it collapses very quickly, but as a regular apple, you know, eh, you know, in a pie, it, but here, here's my conclusion I've come to. If you really don't know what you got and you want to make an apple pie, then mix the varieties so that hopefully everything evens out. But the last apple I want to point out in this group is the one on the, the last one on the right. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Esopus Spitzenberg. This was Thomas Jefferson's, one of his two, two favorite eating out of hand apples. I was so thrilled to have this. And I immediately gave it to a friend who has a great sense of history and completely forgetting that his wife is from Virginia. And he, she was raving about it and then started making comparisons to other apples because that's what happens with apples. You know, they, they evolve. And for instance, my fa personal favorite of contemporary apples, if you want to put it that way, is the Jonathan. I really enjoy the Jonathan. It's getting harder and harder to find a Jonathan. You can get Johnny Gold, but I want a Jonathan. And, you know, I think what happens is, you know, you've dealt with these trees for a while. Fashion changes or you're tired of it. You're like, oh, let's try something new. Well, that's how these apples disappear. And that's that's what this collector's been able to do is to go to prop you go to places where they're getting they're going to cut down these apples. Maybe it's going to be development, who knows. And ironically, uh, I think it's McHenry County, there is the Royal Oak Orchards. It's a huge orchard. The guy who who runs it used to be a property developer. So probably he had something to do maybe with some of the some of the places that we no longer could access because there's now housing divisions, but he reformed himself, let's put it that way. Um, and so there's there's your classic apple pie. But now we have something else. What is this? Okay, I'll spare you the problems. This is a cracker-based pie. This is the recipe from the back of the Ritz cracker box, but it has, it does have some, um, it does have some, um, let's say, historical content. Because when you really ran out of everything else, you were scraping the barrel, you made a pie, a cracker pie. So I made this a couple of times just for my own edification. And the first time, like many people, I did not read all the instructions in advance. So I managed to make, so you make a simple syrup. But what you're supposed to do is layer the crackers and then pour the simple syrup, put a dots on butter, put a crust on top. I thought I knew what I was doing and didn't read the instructions. So I basically made mock apple sauce. But I've since that, and this particular pie, I think the time I made it, I brought it to my dad's senior group, and they were absolutely convinced. In fact, I didn't make an apple pie. I only made this pie, plus some others. And they're like, oh, this is a wonderful apple pie. It's not an apple pie. It's an apple pie. No, it's Ritz crackers in this case. I mean, I could have gone full commando and done, you know, saltines, but but I didn't. I didn't. Um, so that's me and pies and all that good stuff. But depending on where you settled, pies varied in fillings to reflect the local bounty. So if you were in the Northeast, besides apple, there was clam pie. Well, one person's yum is another person's yuck. New fruits unknown to pioneers like the Concord grape, native to the Northeast were made into pies. 
Now the Concord grape pie, the first time I encountered it um, was a little recipe in the Chicago Tribune from a billionaire, W. Clement Stone. And my reaction was, well, that's all very nice. I'm a servantless American cook. And I'm, you know, I'm sure it's very easy to do when you're not doing it at all. You know, it's girls, I want a pie tonight. And I even read where uh, Martha Stewart's um, workers or Martha Stewart's, you know, employees were put to the task of really removing the seeds and they did it, you know, manually. Well, you don't have to do that. When you squeeze a ripe Concord grape, the pulp comes flying out. It comes flying out. Then you, you boil the pulp. So you squeeze it out and you put the skins into one pot. You put the pulp into here and you boil it. And the seeds sort of come up to the top. Most of the seeds, of course, there's some that, you know, you have to kind of tweak later. But nonetheless, then you, once you've separated them enough that you're satisfied, then you go on to um, boil the skins and the pulp together. It's, love that color, don't you? Unfortunately, it doesn't stay that color. That's kind of what it goes to. But what I do, um, um, the lady who wrote the cake Bible and the pie Bible, Rose Levy Berenbaum. I use her recipe for making Concord grape pies. And what I do, so she's a very precise person. So she tells you to put aside two cups and two tablespoons of pulp. That's precision. And I do that until I kind of run toward the end. And sometimes I have a cup left. Sometimes I have a cup and slightly less than a tablespoon, you know, less than a tablespoon, and I just deal with it. I just go ahead and make the pie. But it's a really good pie. It's one you rarely encounter. In fact, I really haven't. And what you do, and it also somewhat stains your teeth for a while, which is just wonderful. So if you're going with a group of people, you know you're all together. It's kind of like you don't have to wear, I'm in Disneyland and wear the same shirt, just have the same dessert and you kind of accomplish the same effect. Now, pumpkin pie, um, pumpkin pie, uh, <clears throat> you know, our national dessert, but it might as well be called squash pie, because depending on where you happen to live and whatever the dominant squash or pumpkin in your region is, that's what you would make it. You could make it out of butternut squash. You could make it out of acorn squash. There's a lot of fluidity, but we tend to want to have the pumpkin squash. And something that I have learned along the way is not every, every pumpkin is a squash, but not every squash is a pumpkin. And those that are pie squashes, they're from the Kirkabita pepo species. Now, it happens Illinois is a big producer of pumpkins. And it began in 1835 when uh, Elijah Dickinson came to Illinois from Tennessee. And he brought with him seeds that became this big pumpkin production area that we, we now know. And so he came to, to Eureka. He opened, he apparently lived in Washington because the wash, oh, you're from Washington? Excellent. So he lived in Washington um, and in both of these places, including Morton, they had their production, their canning facilities. Now all the canning is done in Morton, but prior, prior to that, it was done in three different locations. They, they, they came in 1835, they purchased a canning company in, in Eureka in about 1890-something, tore it down and rebuilt it to their needs. And then eventually they opened in Washington as well as Morton. Um, now, 
it was in the late 1920s that they sold to Libby's. Of course, Libby's now is part of something else, but what else is new? Um, but the preferred, what they tend to grow, so they believe that the Libby, yeah, that the, the Libby preferred squash um, was derived from this Tennessee field pumpkin and butternut squash. But the Tennessee field pumpkin on its own doesn't have a good taste or as good of a taste like as butternut. And it's got stringy texture. How And it's also referred to quite often as cheese because of its shape looks like a, like a cheese wheel. I know, I know, this is all interesting. I'm, I know more than I did a week ago on this topic. But this is the Dickinson squash. Um, Libby's grows squash within 80 miles of their plant in Morton. They're, they're, um, they have a, a special, a preferred Libby's Dickinson squash um, cultivar, but, and they stagger the growing, but they also have other similar cultivars. So, you know, just in case they have a problem. They typically yield 20 tons per acre. The Libby's harvest is in the range of 60 to 100,000 tons per year, or 120 to 200 million pounds per year. They have a 13 week um, canning cycle, and they can take, um, they can take what? around 10 to 50, or approximately 100,000 squash are processed a day. And it takes 90 minutes from bathing to steaming and what have you to get into the can. That's a pr pretty rapid. Now, they have diversified where they are growing because perhaps those may recall 2009, 2010, there was so much rain, they couldn't, they couldn't take everything out of the fields. So they, some they lost. Now, I think there probably was enough for pumpkins. The reason I say probably is because at that time, dog owners who had dogs with indigestion issues were desperately seeking pumpkin. And I knew people who were doing this and I was like, well, I got a few kids at home, can I buy them? Yeah, because I'm not that, I eat pumpkin, but I'm not quite that avid. Um, so that's why they moved it, you know, just to, for some security, moved some of their production, not production, but they're growing to, to Michigan. Now, um, the, lit, the pumpkin pie recipe was from Hazel Dickinson. Um, after they sold the um, canning operations, they still continued, the family still continued to manage them on behalf of Libby. And so one of the husbands came home and said, we need a pumpkin pie recipe. And she made many, many pumpkin pies until they finally settled on one that was the preferred pumpkin pie. And pumpkin pie tradition carries on at Libby's, not just via promotions on the can label or on their website. During the packing season, which lasts about 13 weeks, every day they test their pumpkin for flavor the primary method for testing is daily baking and consumption of pumpkin pies by the employees. Well, it was an off day at the pumpkin farm, wasn't it? I don't know. But this recipe has been on the label since 1950, which is pretty darn cool. And I want you to know, um, culinary historians, Greater Midwest Foodways, we participated in, in, in nominating pumpkin pie as the national state is the Illinois State Pie, not the National Illinois State Pie. And it was successful. Okay, I did it for these people. They never invited me to the signing ceremony. I will live because I now have the story. <laughs> um, molasses pie, this is one of those things where I learned a lot by talking to Southerners in that, you know, it, it had been attributed or has been attributed to the uh, triangular trade of slaves, rum, and molasses. But um, Nancy McDermott some years ago informed me that when they use the word molasses is maybe just as often it's sorghum. And she says, 
and, and, and it's, you know, or leftovers from sugar production. And she calls these syrup pies. They can be cane syrup, maple syrup, molasses, Cairo, sorghum, but in any case, molasses in this case. Sweet potato pie. Um, now from Southern Food from 1987 by John Egerton, he indicated well-traveled sweet potatoes and yams went from Central and South America to Europe with the Spaniards and back to North America in the 17th century. Southerners have eaten them in many forms since 1650. And it may be that sweet potato pie was an English delicacy long before that. So we exported and imported, whatever. Um, George Washington Carver's extensive research on the sweet potato at Tuskegee Institute helped us to popularize the vegetable and also to put more recipes using it into circulation. Now Carver's pie recipe published in the Tuskegee Bulletin early in this century was a prototype of modern versions combining potatoes, uh, sweet potatoes, milk, eggs, sugar, and spices. Okay, so now we go on to the bean pie. If you, well, <laughs> this is a pie that has been a fundraiser since the 1930s for the Nation of Islam. And it was also referenced in Elijah Muhammad's 1960s, How to Eat to Live. And it was minimally processed, and he didn't like sweet potatoes, by the way. Um, and it was Shabazz bake Bakery. A friend of mine, uh, Peter Engler, actually did a lot of the research related to this. And he was describing this guy's dietary issues. And I listened and I said, you know, he's got diverticulitis. This is why he wants all of these things without seeds and included coconut, by the way. Coconut, I don't think should be an issue, but he, he added that. I have made this pie. It could be made with navy beans. It can be made with um, pinto beans. You can also grind beans, like making into a flour and put it into hot water. And let me tell you, that stuff seizes up fast. It's like, boom. And if you go to 73rd and Stony Island on a Saturday afternoon, you might see people wearing suits and ties selling these pies. I haven't bought one recently. The last time was, well, the last time that I recalled the price, it was about $7, but that might've been 10 years ago. And lately with everything else, it probably has gone up. Um, then we have the key lime pie. Um, and this is made, so the, the lime that's in the middle next to the quarter, that's the true key lime pie, key lime. And the, the lime next to it is the um, West Indian. None of these are native to, to the Americas. Probably the first lime trees that came here was with Christopher Columbus and those that followed. And if you look, the um, West Indian appears to be kind of infertile. There's no seeds there. The key lime does have seeds. And when I first pursued making this pie years ago, my thought was I would have a hard time getting a key lime. We forget to appreciate the, the beauties of living in a transportation hub. It was extremely easy. I went to the first uh, grocery, you know, fruit and fruit and vegetable place I went, there they were. So no problem. Um, but the key lime itself, like I said, it's, it's, it's from the Southwest Asia and it spread through Europe due to the Crusades. It was popular in Spain and key limes were likely introduced by the conquistador, um, to, you know, conquistadors as well as, as, as uh, Christopher Columbus. The first recorded key lime groves in the, in the Americas was 1525 and has been grown as a kitchen garden plant with small scale groves not until 1883. The thing that wiped out this, the, these, um, the key lime was hurricanes. In 1906, wiped out pineapple and key lime was introduced 
but by 1923, another hurricane wiped it out. So it's what natural disasters didn't finish, residential development killed the remaining key lime commercial production in the 1950s. Key lime returned to being a garden specimen plant. So you might be lucky and meet somebody, but key limes are grown in Mexico for local consumption and the larger Tahiti or Persian limes is grown almost exclusively for the United States. Um, and there it is with some whipping cream because, you know, I still don't, even though I made it myself and I usually tend to like the things I make, not so much this one. It's nothing wrong, just me. Um, so now here's the pecan pie. You probably think of the pecan pie and you probably associate it with the South, Georgia and all that. You probably think Scarlett O'Hara not only sent bows off to get barbecue, but to get a piece of pumpkin pie, except it didn't exist then. And in fact, pre-Civil War, pecans didn't really exist in Georgia either. It was a, an indirect consequence of the Civil War, because now there was labor shortage and labor was expensive, and they needed to have crops that needed relatively less labor and had value. And so they started to, um, uh, they started in the 1870s to graft pecan trees. There had been experiments in the 1840s. Uh, it was a black slave who did all that. Um, but by the 1870s, this became a crop that they needed. And so what was important to them was that the crops, you know, had were disease resistance, could handle the climate, had large meats in them, and hopefully ripen about the same time so that there was less labor involved. Well, the name for pecans is Caria Illinoisensis. It's from Illinois. Well, at least named from Illinois. And I've known this intellectually for some years, and I know that it can go into southern Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Tennessee, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas, Mississippi, Louisiana, Mexico, Jalisco, Veracruz, pecans. I didn't mention Georgia. Georgia wasn't there. It's an introduced crop. I told this to a southerner who got really not happy with me. I would say defensive, but I would just say not happy. But um, a friend of mine who I've known 30 some years, uh, she taught me how to do home food preservation through, through Illinois um, Extension Service. She recently returned to her family home of Oakford, which is southwest of Bloomington and it's northwest of Springfield. She has five pecan trees in her yard. She bought that little tool, she saw it demonstrated on YouTube, and bought that tool to, to, to help pick up the pecans. And if you take a look in the right corner, the pecan on the left of the meat, that was her wild pecans. The pecans on the right are the pecans that I bought at the grocery store. So you could see, you know, and it took a lot of effort. I got that nut meat that you see on the right side. I got that the first time. The second time on the left, you don't, you don't see it because I didn't, I didn't bother, but there was a comparison contrast. There was a whole bunch more nuts. I cracked all of them to finally get the one that looks somewhat decent for the picture. Otherwise I was, I was having failures. And she ultimately collected, I believe 52 pounds. And there were, and there were, there were, and she didn't collect them all because they were, the squirrels were taking them. And finally, you know, she realized this is a, this is an overwhelming job. And she stopped herself from collecting more. And she told, she gave me some additional information that I think is quite interesting. You know, because you don't really think of Illinois as a pecan. I, 
intellectually knew it was pecan, but I had never really seen an Illinois grown pecan until the last few months. But she said, in my research, I saw that pecans are native to the tributaries of the Mississippi River. The Sagamon River is one of those and runs just north of Oakford, about a mile away. Some local history illustrates how pecans are native to our area. She said, before Oakford was established, the area was referred to as pecan bottoms. There is a spring-fed large water body called Pecan Run, just north of here, on the other side of the river. My dad and many in the area used it as a swimming hole growing up. I even read in the local paper that women who lived in Peterburg uh, used the run for swimming lessons in the 1960s. Now it's off limits to swimmers as the landowner has posted a sign. West of Oakford, along the river bottom, was an area called Pecan Grove. It may not exist anymore as farmers have taken out many of the trees over the years. And near the grove was a church called Pecan Chapel. It has moved to Oakford and is now the United Methodist Church. But there's a real pecan-centric thing going on there. Uh, I won't go for much further beyond saying, reading in local history books, I read that even before Oakford as a town, the area known was Pecan Bottoms, and here's an excerpt from the book, They Left Their Mark in Oakford, 1872. Won't go into it all right now, it's just, we'd be here all night. Um, but nonetheless, this, this Pecan-centricness, I intellectually know, but didn't really know. Now, allegedly, some of the influences of the Pecan Pie was chess pie, molasses pie. Um, at least as of a few years ago, the earliest known recipe was from 1886. It was from Harper's Bazaar, and it was just a little recipe filler thing. And then the next recipe came in the Kitchen Oracle. This was, for many years, the only known recipe, the first recipe, and it was a um, church community cookbook from St. Louis. The person who submitted the recipe was from Texas. And we had a gentleman um, who has since gone on to heaven, uh, Edgar Rose, who was a big enthusiast of the pecan and the pecan pie. And his personal recipe did not use Cairo syrup. And he felt it was a distinctive pie because he says more often than not, nuts were ground up and used like for desserts. They were the background. They were the thickener. He says, whereas in pecan pie, it's pecan forward. Um, and I thought that was kind of interesting. And Cairo syrup itself um, was a product of the late 19th century. So Corn Products Refining Company of New York and Chicago was formed and introduced Cairo light and dark Cairo syrup. 1902, Cairo syrup was introduced. 1920s, Cairo issued a pamphlet with the pecan pie recipe. And from the 1930s forward, it's been on the label of Cairo syrup. So the pecan is not from Georgia and the Cairo syrup is not from Georgia either. It is a Midwestern pie. Yes, it might be more popular there. I, I'll give it that. But at the same time, it's not necessarily what people have been thinking. So then our next pie. Oh, and there's a pecan pie. And that's Mr. Rose's recipe using brown sugar instead of Cairo. It's delicious. And it has been published at least once in the Sun-Times. And um, he kind of got upset with me because he used um, I think it was like a tablespoon of vanilla or a teaspoon of vanilla and a teaspoon of rum or a tablespoon of rum. I don't remember the measurement. I used double vanilla because I don't keep rum at home. And the person observing me make the recipe made that adjustment to the recipe without talking to me about it, not that she had to. And he called the Sun-Times and complained to the food editor. And then she called me to complain about me and that whatever. So things, you know, have a way of getting around. 
So this is the Indiana sugar cream pie. It falls into the category of sometimes being referred to as desperation pie. It isn't because you're dying of hunger and this is the last thing you can feed your family. You're living on a farm. The minister is in his buggy pulling into your driveway and you have nothing to serve. And if you, know, you make a pie crust and then it's what flour, cream, sugar, and you just stir it around with three fingers and you get it into the oven and you have something to give the minister. So it's desperation more in the social sense. And another pie was the chess pie. Um, this is like eggs, butter, sugar, and flour. And it's part of the category of what they call transparent pies um, from Kentucky and Tennessee with eggs, butter, sugar, flour, and a generous splash of milk. Um, and in the hand pie category, you have the Cornish and later the Finnish pasties. And the reason I say Cornish, the Cornish came like in the 1850s and worked the mines. They moved on, the Finnish came, they also made pasty pipe, but they used rye flour, not wheat flour, but they quickly adopted to the white flour. And so there you have it. Now the, the rhubarb pie, this is, this is um, a centennial farm that used to exist. The farm still is there, but the farm has changed hands. But this was a centennial marker that the, this farm had stayed in the same family for multiple generations. And you know, if you think about it, we're probably coming up on farms gonna have bicentennial lineage, but that's, you know, a couple of, some years away probably. Uh, well, I know we were, well, never mind. Um, but the planting of rhubarb, which originally came from Siberia, was recorded in Italy in 1608 and then 20, 30 years later in Europe. In 1778, rhubarb is recorded as a food plant in Europe. Early records of rhubarb in America identify an unnamed main gardener as having obtained seed or rootstock from Europe. In the period between 1790 and 1800, he introduced it to growers in Massachusetts where its popularity spread and by 1822, it was sold in produce markets. Let me see. Now, this particular pie that I made was a strawberry rhubarb, simply because that moment in time, that's what I happened to make. Uh, and they happened to ripen about the same time. So it's understandable why, but I'm perfectly happy just eating a rhubarb pie all on its own. Now, <laughs> I don't know if I even should bother to mention this, but this was, so Crisco had a pie contest which I submitted this particular pie to. And it was from, it had to be a pie made with Illinois products. So apples, recent Northern Illinois, we have apples. Maple syrup at that time, the only known grove, commercial grove was um, Funks. And if you're driving towards Springfield, you pass it every time. And then of course we have plenty of corn. So I, I made an effort and inserted cornmeal crust. And then here's the stupid part. I'm talking me. I did not have to put that meringue on top. I could have left it the way it was. But no, I needed to demonstrate that I was totally frugal and was going to use everything because that's what a farmer's wife would do. Well, not that I'm a farmer's wife, of course. So I made this pie like several times, never had a problem with the with the with the meringue, took it to Springfield for the fair, and it was weepy, weepy, weepy. It was, you know, it absorbed the moisture in the air and now it was spitting it out. But at the same time, when everybody's pie that was in this contest, I didn't win obviously, but everybody's pie that was in the contest came back with a nice neat cut. Mine had gouges from many spoons that had attacked this pie. So I went and talked to the superintendent and she said, you know, we're not really supposed to tell you the outcome of what happened. Your pie was delicious, but if it weren't for that meringue, I says, oh, please tell me about that meringue. 
And really what this pie was, I had gone to the Highland Park Library. I use my library card well. Uh, and I looked up all sorts of different books and about pies. And this is a variation actually of a marble pie, which is more European than American. And I um, grated the apples, cooked them with butter and sugar. Then I made a uh, cream and maple syrup egg, an egg custard. And that's how this pie came to be. I've only made it a few times because I was kind of upset about the outcome. <laughs> but um, now since 2009, Greater Midwest Foodways has been doing a pie contest, or not pie, a um, uh, family heirloom recipe contest at state Midwestern state fairs. Uh, we began in Illinois because it was nearby in a, uh, because of my participation at the uh, in these different food contests, I knew the people from the state fair. So that's how we latched on to that. And um, people have it's 50% is a history, 40% is the prepared dish of the recipe, and 10% is the presentation. And a few years ago for the bicentennial, we put a book together on this. And here's a representative recipe. Um, let me check what kind of is. Sorry. Okay. Nobody will kill me. Um, but I'm going to read you the story that came with this particular recipe. It's a sugar pie. I just inherited my grandmother's rolling pin. I know it doesn't mean much to you. Anyone can go and buy a rolling pin, but this one was used by my great grandma my grandmother and my mom. This rolling pin, my rolling pin means the world to me. And oh, if my rolling pin could talk, wonder what stories it would tell. Let me tell you my story. My great grandma came to America from France and brought her daughter, my grandmother with her. They came to America shortly before World War I. Mom told me that my grandmother was eight years old when she came to America. Mom used to tell me that one thing grandmother remembered about that time was looking up and seeing the Statue of Liberty. They settled eventually in a small town in Iowa called Mystic. That's where my story begins. Imagine this, two French speaking ladies in the middle of small town USA. Okay, that makes me laugh just thinking about it. But the reason they moved there was because it was a town that was heavily populated with other French-speaking immigrants. Great-grandma never did learn to speak English, but after a while, my grandmother did, and I still remember going to my grandmother's home. It was about five, six years old, and I remember walking up the steps and into her house, and these people carrying on conversations that made no sense to me. I was scared, uncomfortable, and didn't want to be there. Looking back on it, that would have been so cool to listen to the conversations going on in that house. I was born and raised in Illinois. So when we would visit great grandma and grandmother, it was a four hour drive to get there and four hours to get back. So when we would visit, we would stay for a few days. I remember many times visiting grandmother's house and all the activity going out in the kitchen. Sure. Grandmother had a living room, but the family lived in the kitchen. And I remember sitting at her kitchen table many times and watching the women of my family cooking together. My grandmother always made the pies, my great grandma made the bread, and my mom would do the rest. I was too young to keep to help, but they still gave me things to do, like picking the green beans for dinner or picking fruit from her trees for pie or going to the cellar to get something. When you're little, you don't want to sit still. Help out or visit with the family, especially because I couldn't actually understand what they were talking about because they spoke in French. Not me. I would do whatever was asked of me when I and then rush back to her kitchen table and watch the women of my family work together creating a meal. I loved my grandmother's yard. It was huge. She had a big garden, lots of trees, fruit bushes, and a chicken coop. How cool is that? 
living in a big city, all that stuff was not things that a small child would have seen on a daily basis. My grandmother is what I would call self-sustainable. She cooked, baked with the ingredients that she grew. And I remember going outside to pick berries for one of her pies. And I think it was just the times and economy that we, she grew up in. But living in rural Iowa, there wasn't a Walmart on every block for her to buy what she needed. She had to grow it herself and she never wasted a thing. My grandfather owned a store. In fact, it was the only store in Centerville, Iowa for a while. My mother used to tell me stories of this store. I kind of imagined it looked like the Olson's Mercantile in Little House of the Prairie. I always thought the Olson's were rich and people who owned stores were rich. That was not the case. My grandmother worked every day in the store with her husband. When my mom would get home from school, she was the one in charge of making dinner for her family. My mom has two siblings. She has an older sister, Ella Mae, and a younger brother, John. And there's a 17 age difference between my aunt and my mom. So my aunt wasn't around to help a lot. My mom's job was to make the meals for the family. One of my fa mom's favorite things was to make dinner was chicken and noodles. And she would make the dough and roll it out before school. And when she came home after school, cut them up and use them for dinner. My mom made that dish many times while I was growing up. It's not uncommon that that particular dish is also served over mashed potatoes, <laughs> which sometimes frightens some people. My mom is a great pie baker too, and I'm sure she picked up from her mother. My mom made pies for school functions, funerals, and as dessert for her family. Just as I did for my grandmother, one of my jobs growing up was picking the fruit for her pies. I loved watching mom make pies. So one day when I was about eight years old, she invited me to make a pie with her. She had made, just made a full pie for a neighbor and she had leftover pie dough. She showed me how to make this wonderful pie called sugar pie. She had made it for us many times, but now I got to make it. And great grandma created it when there was extra pie crust dough. Remember, nothing was wasted in her family. This was her solution when there was extra dough left over. This pie doesn't look pretty. It doesn't fit in a pan perfectly. And let's just admit it, at a bake sale, on looks alone, this pie would not get sold. However, just one bite into this pie and you will see why it's part of my heritage for four generations. The crispy crust and buttery thin goodness on your lips. Yum. My mom said that my grandmother would bake this all the time for me when I was little. My mom was, has a cool rolling pin. And I remember some time ago asking her if it was her mom's pin. Grandmother's rolling pin produced some of the best pies that I had ever eaten. I'd love to have her rolling pin as my, and as my own daughter grows, I would like to use it and pass it down to her. I would love to show her how to make sugar pie using grandmother's pen. Mom told me that she passed away, when grandmother passed away, her sister took almost everything, including pictures. There was no division of property. I can only imagine what my mom must have felt like. I guess it caused major friction between my mom and her sister for years. And if I had a fairy godmother and she granted me one wish, my wish would be uh, able to cook with the women of my family in my grandmother's house. I would have loved to have cooked with all these women. Great grandma and grandmother were taken away before I could really cook with them. So for the last few years, for whatever reason, my aunt has let loose some of grandmother's treasures and let my mom have them. These treasures aren't valued much in money, but most have sentimental value that is priceless. In February this year, my mom called and asked me if I would like one of grandmother's treasures. Not even asking what it was, I said yes without hesitation. I have only one other thing that belonged to my grandmother. Well, not really, it belonged to my grandfather. It's an ashtray from his store. So mom didn't tell me what the treasure was, 
only that she would give it to me the next time she saw me. In April, shortly before my birthday, mom gave me my grandmother's rolling pin. I have very few memories left of my great grandma and grandmother, but sitting at her kitchen table, watching her collecting fruits for her pie is, a, is, is one. The same rolling pin that my mom made noodles for her family. I feel like my grandmother is here with me and as silly as it may sound, I feel closest to her when I put my hands on the very same spots she did when I rolled the crust for the sugar pie. If my rolling pin could tell me a story, would it be in English or French? It is with great pride that my entry for you was created by my great grandmother who taught my, her daughter, my mother, grandmother, and who taught her daughter, my mom, who taught me when I was eight years old how to make um, sugar pie. And my mom is a pinch of this and a handful of that, a smidge of this kind of cook. There is nothing wrong with that except her handful is not the same as my handful. It's not an exact recipe because you never know how much crust will be left over. So in order to create a standard recipe, I will be using a full nine inch pie plate. And the three staples of this pie are always the same, brown sugar, milk, and butter. And according to mom, another ingredient was sometimes added depending on the season, and that ingredient was nuts. Grandmother had pecan and black walnut trees. And I'm not sure if this type of pie actually came from France with the great grandma, or maybe perhaps a recipe created because of the times, accessible ingredients, or just the fact that nothing was thrown away. But my great grandma and grandmother baked something that is out of this world in flavor. And I do note that this pie was always made with the leftover pie crust. A pie crust was never made specifically for this recipe, I've even tried to look this pie up in the internet and have found nothing remotely close. So from my rolling pin to you, enjoy your family's sugar pie. We get some humdinger stories. This is, but I really liked, you know, that treasured item from your grandmother that you thought you were never, never, never going to get, and now you got it. So I'll tell you a little bit about how I make a pie crust. I will eventually revise these pictures, but I haven't in, <laughs> in what, 18 years. But I use two cups of all-purpose flour and a teaspoon of salt that I stir together. And then I add two-thirds of a cup of Crisco. I've done butter. I've done lard. I've done all sorts of things. So, you know, um, I, I just, but the Crisco pie has the advantage that you can have it in the oven in 15 minutes. Everything else you need to put it in the refrigerator and let it chill. So I cut the Crisco shortening into the flour and salt. And I do it until I have this kind of lumpy consistency because you want those nice flaky layers. And then I add five tablespoons of ice water. When I first started to make pies once upon a time, I tried to put in the minimum amount of water. I thought that was the clever way to go. No, put in the water. Don't worry about it. And you want a texture, at least in my hands, I feel it's like a texture of Play-Doh. Um, and I get a good enough crust, so I, I'm not unhappy with that. You know, you can experiment. This is, you work with the pie crust that works for you. So you stir it in, but I do it very lightly. I don't want any gluten to get activated. And when I have it kind of mostly folded in, then I start compressing it, folding, you know, pressing it together because I really don't want that, that gluten going. And then, you know, I put it into a round. Now, if I make the full pie crust, I don't, I've never had leftover pie crust. Um, I, I usually split it 60-40. 60% is the bottom, 40% is the top. At least that's the ratio I found. 50-50 doesn't quite work as well. Then you make it into a patty. I don't use very much flour. I use the least amount of flour. I mean, it's always seemed, I don't know what it is today, but in the past, you're making a pie and you see this huge mound of flour and they're like throwing it on. No, I want the least amount of flour. I don't want this crust to dry out. I put it between wax paper and I put just a scant amount of flour. 
then I put once I think I have the right dimensions, I put on a the um, the pie pan I intend to use, and I want to see if I have at least one and a half inches diameter going around because I need it later on when I go and make the edges. I make a raised edge every time. You probably saw it in the pies. I look at it as if the pie that let's let's let go. We're making a pumpkin pie. Sometimes I have more batter than fills, it overflows the um, pie pan. But if I use this method of around the uh, edges, I can add extra pie filling. And also it helps to act like as a gutter to keep things from flowing over. It doesn't mean that doesn't happen. And I always have some parchment paper or something underneath to catch the drips in case it happens. But I, you know, I try to, Put the odds in my favor. Now, if you want a woven crust, then you take that top and you sort of roll it out and cut like one inch strips or whatever you happen to like. And then you start the weaving process. It's not always pretty, but it gets the job done. And then I add a little bit of milk and some sugar. Now this looks a little bit too much milk, but I think I was doing it so you could see it. But then I sprinkle on some sugar. And this is a series of pies that I made for the Highland Park Senior Center many years ago. It was one of those pictures where you took it, you were not terribly impressed, and then later on you go, damn, that's a good picture. So it's one of my favorites to keep going. Okay, so my closing statement, whatever. Recipes tried and true, compiled by the Ladies' Aid Society of the First Presbyterian Church, Marion, Ohio, 1894. Marion, by the way, is where uh, Warren G. Harding lived. It's also where the Popcorn Museum is. And after that, I've run out of stories about Marion, uh, Ohio. But there are plenty of women capable of choosing good husbands or if not good when chosen, of making them good. Yet these same women may be ignorant on the subject of making good pie. Ingenuity, good judgment, and great care should be used in making all kinds of pastry. And this is 1894. So even back then, they were a little bit shy when it came to making pie. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for coming.